want to read tonight a passage that is familiar to all of us uh, from John chapter 4, Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman. There are some passages in Scripture that uh, probably crop up more than others. Certainly uh, in street pastoring, there are certain encounter passages that we find ourselves uh, gravitating towards. Certainly in our team, we do in the devotions. Um, just thinking about the context of those encounters that we have with unknown strangers in places uh, that we didn't necessarily expect or with people we didn't expect. And this is one of those passages. Um, so let's read it, and then I want to think with you a little bit about it uh, and its context. So John 4, beginning at verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. 
Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever, I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Amen. May God bless his word to our understanding. I don't know how you picture the woman of Samaria. Certainly for a long time, I think my image of the woman of Samaria has been this uh, slightly cowed, rejected, uh, defeated woman. I've heard for years, as you no doubt have too, that she came out at the 12 noon, which was the worst time of day to come to a well in the heat of the day and gather water that typically women gathered water uh, at first light or early in the morning before the uh, sun was in full heat, and they came together for companionship and safety and all sorts of reasons. And so forever I've imagined that this woman was uh, somehow left out of the crowd, that here was a woman about whose past we know a little and we draw some conclusions, that somehow there was uh, something about this woman that made her uh, a, a, a vulnerable, broken, defeated individual. That's just how I have tended to think of her. I now think I'm entirely wrong. <laughs> I think the Samaritan woman would do really well in Glasgow. <laughs> I think she's a feisty, gobby chick. <laughs> and I reckon the woman of Samaria... is a woman of incredible, unmanageable strength. And the more I think about this passage, and the more I think about the people we meet on the streets of Glasgow, I think she's a perfect individual to hold up. But there's a whole backstory here, and that's a whole missing piece of the jigsaw that I've never really taken into consideration. Now, I don't want to wear you out with too many readings, but I'm going to anyway, so. <laughs> because I wanted to see what the significance of this place was where they were. Sychar, which nowadays is a village called Askar or Ashkar in the West Bank. Judea and Samaria is the West Bank. 
And Ashkar, or Saikar as it was, was a village just uh, on the site or very close to a place which on the map today is called Balata. Tel Balata. Tel in Hebrew just means hill or mountain. And it sits nestled between Mount Etbal and Mount Gerizim. So these two mountains kind of face each other down. You know, you can, can imagine a sort of Lord of the Rings landscape. So you've got these two mountains which glower at one another with a valley coming in between. And just at the opening of the valley, at the mouth of the valley, there was a place called Shechem. And that place called uh, Shechem, you'll find lots of references to, and we're going to look at a couple of them. But Tel Balata just means the Balata Hill. And basically... There's a mound there now because Shechem got destroyed so many times that it just ended up being a mound. And near it was a village called Sychar. So we find a reference in Genesis 12. Just bear in mind that Shechem and Sychar were just a stone's throw from one another. In Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Shechem was the first place in the land of Canaan where Abram ever built an altar to the Lord. The first place on foreign soil that was dedicated to the God of Israel and where Abram received the promise of inheriting this land. Hold that thought. Genesis chapter 33, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're down a couple of generations in verse 18 of Genesis 33, after Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. El Elohe Israel, the God of gods, the God of, all, the, the, the God of all gods of Israel. And so here's the piece of land that Jacob bought. There's no other reference in Scripture to any other piece of land that Jacob bought. It was here. And if you go on Google Maps today and you look up Balata and Ashkar, you will find one of these tiny little dots that they put on Google Maps that says Jacob's well. Because there's a church there now and it's still commemorated there. And so Shechem and Sychar or Ashkar and Balata, it's all there now. And that was the land that Jacob bought 
And Abram had already set up an altar to the Lord there. And now here, two generations later, is Jacob purchasing the land and dedicating it to the Lord. And it's a little piece of Israel. <laughs> it's a little teeny tiny toty piece of Israel. And he worships God on soil that he has purchased and owns. And it's the first fruits, if you like. Now, the next passage is too long to read, but I want to encourage you to read it. And I'm going to read a few verses, and then I'm going to pre-see the rest so that you know what happens. Chapter 34, so hot on the heels. Now, Dinah, you don't hear much about Dinah, do you? You hear lots about the 12 brothers because they were the 12 tribes of Israel, but Leah had one girl called Dinah who doesn't get much of a mention. Here's her moment, but it's not a moment of glory. Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. Oh, there's a woman going out on her own. And when Shechem, she's going out on a mission of reconciliation. She's going out, maybe she's got bread and fruit in her basket, I have no idea, but she's going out to meet the neighbors. She's going out with backpacks on of stuff that might be helpful to the women of the land, presumably. I don't imagine they were flip-flops, but who knows? And so Dinah is going out on a mission of kindness, friendship, and relationship. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. Maybe not the best way for a first date if you're hoping to woo and win this girl. And Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled. And his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing until they came home. And then, let me just pray see, Shechem's father went out to meet with uh, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. The two fathers had a little bit of a chat. And Hamor said, look, my son really loves your daughter. Can we not work this out? Is there not some way? Is there not some way that you can settle here and intermarry and we'll let our daughters marry your sons and, and you let your daughters marry our sons? You can settle amongst us and the land is open. Live in the land, trade in it, acquire property. And so Jacob's sons hatched a little plan. And so they said, well, we couldn't do such a thing. We couldn't possibly intermarry with people who are, where the men are uncircumcised. So here's the deal. If all of the men in Shechem get circumcised, okay, then we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead with the plan. And so they say, fantastic, great idea. And so every man in Shechem gets circumcised. And three days later, it says, while the men are all still in pain, Simeon and Levi go through the city of Shechem and kill every man. And they carry off their women and their children and all their livestock, and they plunder Shechem entirely. And what started out as a mission of kindness and relationship building and friendship ended up with the Israelites being a stench in the nostrils of the Canaanites and the peoples who lived, the tribal groups that lived in that area. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We're few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. 
But they replied, well, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Fast forward to Sychar. Here's a woman who knows our history. Here's a woman where there's still a kind of a dispute. There's a backstory then to this place, a backstory where this was the place where an expression of kindness went horribly wrong, and where God had said to Abram two generations previously, to look at the land and to your offspring I will give this land. And he had sent his people that they were intended to be agents of reconciliation in the world. They were meant to point people to the living God. And yet what had started out as a mission of reconciliation through Dinah had ended up with the people of God being a stench in the nostrils of the people who lived there. And so here comes Jesus into this area with this troubled history. Now, the Samaritans were not Canaanites, but they were half-breeds, if you like, in the eyes of the Jews. They'd stayed back when most of Israel and Judah had gone into exile, and they had intermarried with the other people. They got, kept their, their heads down and intermarried, and so in the Jews' eyes, they were a compromised, intermarried people, not properly Jewish anymore and that the Jews were the real deal, and the Samaritans were an enemy people. And so here's a piece of land which stinks of brutality, which stinks of war and hatred and deception. Here's a piece of land where historically the Jewish people ended up set against the natives who lived there, and here now is Jesus the Jew coming into the same territory and meeting a woman of Samaria who is a half-breed. She's one of the other lot. It's a Romeo and Juliet. And this woman knows her history. And there's a little bit of territorial dispute going on. I love the fact that she's so feisty. He comes and asks her for a drink. Indeed, the NIV is very polite. It just says, give me a drink in the Greek, because that's what a man would say. Now, if this woman was cowed and defeated, meek and obedient, she would have given him a drink. She'd have kept her eyes down. She'd have kept her mouth shut. She might have kept her face veiled, and she would have given him a drink. But instead, she takes him to task she says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? So, all right, let's have the chat. How's this working then? And Jesus, I think Jesus loves these kind of conversations, by the way. You know, there's lots of these conversations where people try to get Jesus to do something for them, and he knocks them back. Like the woman, you know, the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was affected by a demon, and Jesus said, you know, deliver my daughter from a demon. He says, is it really right to take the children's bread and give it to their dogs to see what she'll do with that? And she comes back. 
Because the people that we deal with on the streets of Glasgow, whether as a church here at SGT coming in or whether going out onto the streets as street pastors, you know, there will be people, there are people who will come back. <laughs> they will give you their answer. And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, he ups the ante. She says, how can you ask me for a drink? He says, really? If you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. Level two. <laughs> Sir, the woman said, ha ha, you have nothing to drink with and the well is deep. Are you greater than, get this, our father Jacob? Oh, we're going down that road, are we? Our father Jacob. This is my well in my village, and I'm descended from Jacob. I think you'll find. Who gave us the well and drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said, well, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. Of course, if you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst. And so she says, okay, give me this water. And so Jesus takes it to the next level. Okay, go and call your husband. And undeterred, she comes back and she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus plays his trump card and says, you're absolutely right. You've had five. And the guy you're with now, and it's open to interpretation, it either means that she was living with this other guy or she was with someone else's husband. He's not your husband. And so in this context, where here's a woman, a woman who is claiming kin all the way, who knows something about this area, who knows something about the history, who is drawing lines all along the way, who's fighting her corner until the point that the gospel breaks through into her life. A man, a prophet, a prophet who can see into her life. And then she ups the ante even more. Okay, so our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Any of you ever had the Catholic Protestant chat on the streets? Any of you ever had the conversations about senseless divisions? You say, we say. The argument, because you'll never win, as we know, an argument on the streets or in the cafe when random folks come in. And so Jesus says, believe me, a, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem, because salvation is from the Jews. It's not about place. It's not about right or wrong. And so here is this woman. And I suspect that her backstory, maybe her husband had died, but I suspect that given that men had the authority to divorce women and not the other way around, was too hard to manage. And I wonder if the reason why this woman had been married five times and now didn't have a husband at all was because five times this opinionated, strong woman 
who wasn't afraid to speak her mind or say what she really thought, was probably considered unmanageable in that society. I don't have any evidence for that statement, except it's unlikely that five times she was widowed, and if she was, they would call her a widow. And she's not referred to as a widow. You see, Jesus loves the ones who know what they think, the ones who are full of opinions, the gobby, the feisty, the argumentative. Because here is a woman who knows something of the history, and I think there's something beautiful about what Jesus is doing here. Because when she first arrives, Jesus is sitting down, and he engages her in conversation. She had every reason to imagine that this was a sting, a trap. She'd come out to the well on her own at the middle of the day. Here's a man on his own. Were his friends just hiding behind that bush about to jump her? This was a place where there was a history. <laughs> and where a woman had gone in one direction to seek to be reconciled to the people as the Jewish people were supposed to do, to be assigned to the nations of God, here was this woman with her troubled, difficult past, not afraid to say what she thought. A woman who thought she knew that she was one of the people of God and she was willing to fight her corner on that matter. And Jesus received this woman. And what did this woman become? She became an agent of reconciliation between the Jews and the Samaritans. Dinah's mission was achieved through this descendant. <laughs> Dinah's mission to bring good news. And Jesus, turning back the message of violence that Simeon and Levi had dealt out, Jesus turning around a message which had begun with a rape and lots of killings and turning it instead to a message of life and hope and healing. A woman who is feisty, but Jesus just keeps raising the level and meeting her where she is. And so Jesus sends all of us, by day or by night, whether plain clothes or badged, to go into the streets of Glasgow and to encounter the feisty and the gobby, the mouthy and the chatty, the opinionated, and the ones who sit on other sides of divides and will argue their corner. And Jesus loves them and longs for them. And Jesus is able to take people, and I have seen this so many times, that some of the most powerful and dynamic people of Christ were really difficult once. Paul, I suppose, is a classic example if you want one from the pages of Scripture. And so you who are sent out with or without a badge on are sent out to have and to expect encounters, are sent out into a city that has its own cultural history of war and division, of resentment and of barriers, and you and I are sent out to be agents of reconciliation. 
We're sent out into the highways and the byways and the places where we work and the neighborhoods where we live and the families where we have our relationships and sometimes our most difficult encounters. And Jesus sends us as agents of healing and reconciliation. And some of that takes place on the streets and some of it takes place behind closed doors. To bring living water to people in the name of Jesus who otherwise are parched in a desert land. And a history that was intended to be a good history for the people is a healed history because Jesus gets involved. And there can be a healed history when Jesus gets involved. And it might well be that you'll have some pretty dynamic encounters along the way. But the Spirit of Jesus in you will give you words and wisdom to speak in those situations and places where some of the gobbiest Glaswegians are white unto harvest. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we bless and thank you for the power of your word and of your gospel to change and challenge and transform lives. That with the simple insight that you brought to a conversation, a woman was undone her arguments from history, ethnic division, broken personal woundedness, dissolve before a revelation that you are the Messiah, such that she was able to go into her community and bear witness to the gospel so that many others could come and say, we no longer believe because of her, but because we have heard and received. And so, Lord, as we hear your word and as we prepare to go into the ordinary business of a coming week, Lord, we are sent yet again by you into the highways and the byways of our lives and of this city. And we ask you, Lord, to fit and equip us for all that that will hold for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.